You've been holding out on us, hadn't you? Take your Bibles, turn this evening to Ephesians chapter 5. We are in part 2 of our series on the Holy Spirit. Actually, the series is on what I believe, or knowing what I believe. And last Sunday we talked about the Holy Spirit and His ministry, and we got part of the way through. And I was told afterwards that I had misinformed you about what the last scripture was. It was not Ephesians 5, 8. It was Ephesians 5, 18. So Ephesians 5, 18. We stopped with the section on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so just by way of introduction, let me make that distinction between the indwelling and the filling of the Spirit uh, once again, just as briefly as I can. First of all, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is an experience that happens to every Christian. It happens only once in every Christian's life, and it happens at the moment of salvation. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. Ephesians 1, 13, and 14 tell us at the moment of salvation, God puts His Spirit in us as His seal of ownership and as His assurance that we are His and that He will never forsake us. The filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 18, um, I thought it was interesting that we should note that there is nowhere in Scripture that we are commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, but we are indeed commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And we looked at that for a little bit last time, that Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18, that we are not to be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. And we noted several things about that. First of all, that it's command, it's not just a polite, casual suggestion, but it is a firm, straightforward command, you be filled with the Spirit. We noticed also that it was in the plural form, which means you, all of you, it's not for some of you, just a select few of you, but this is for all of you. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that we should all experience. And we also noted that it was in the <clears throat> passive voice, which means that it's not something that you do, it is something that you allow to be done to you. It is also in the present tense, which tells us that it is a continuous, ongoing process, not a once-in-a-lifetime action. It is literally, be ye being filled with Spirit. Now, we come to the second part of that, and which is what happens uh, when we are filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, after the command to be filled with the Spirit, we're told of the four results in the life of an individual, in the life of a Christian, if they are filled with the Spirit. We find in Ephesians 5, 18, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is dispensation, but be filled with Spirit, and speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. The first thing that we're told that the filling of the Holy Spirit does when we are literally being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God is that it, it affects our speech, speaking to one another. Paul says the same thing in, in Colossians chapter 3 in verses 16 and 17. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that literally means that we are controlled by the Holy Spirit. It affects how we relate to one another, and the first way that it affects that is in the way that we talk to one another. The second <clears throat> result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that it leads to harmony with the brethren, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Speaking in the correct way to each other leads us to living in harmony with each other. And the third thing that the filling of the Holy Spirit does is it leads people to be characterized by thankful hearts, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you show me a grumbler, or you show me a mumbler, I'll show you someone who is not filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are not hard to please. But filled with an over, we are indeed rather filled with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. The last thing is that the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit leads to mutual submission. <clears throat> Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now the whole subject of submission is a rather tender subject, especially for many women. And rightfully so, because it has been abused. But when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it leads to mutual submission in our lives. It, if we are in leadership, it leads to servant-hearted leadership. In marriage, it prompts us to serve our mates. Difficult as it is for some males to grasp, marriage is to be mutual submission one to another. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Just as Jesus loved the church, the spirit-filled husband loves his wife. I love the story that Jack Hayford tells about a marriage a married couple that attended one of those seminars that is led by one of those male demagogues who is teaching on on submission and how that's if you're truly submitted, it really turns you into something that approaches being a doormat. Well, the, the story goes that the husband was taking all of this in. His wife, however, was fuming hour by hour as she heard what was being taught. When he got his wife into the car headed home, he said, Well, what did you think of that? His wife didn't say a word. So he said, Well, I think it was great. 
When they arrived home, she got out, silently followed him into the house. Once he was inside, he slammed the door and he said, Stand right there. I want you to know that I heard what was said tonight, and it's the way things are going to be around here. Having said that, he didn't see her again for two weeks. And after two weeks, he began to see her a little out of one eye. You'll get that after you get home. I suspect that probably more men needed a black eye over that than they probably got. I have discovered that there is seldom a problem with submission in the home where the husband is truly submitted to God. Now, this brings us to the last part, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 7 through 12. Apostle Paul says here, For the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For one is given the word of wisdom through, through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Now, it's not my purpose in this study to talk at length about the spiritual gifts individually. But I do want to make some general observations about the gifts as a whole, and then I want to deal with the most divisive of the gifts uh, in our remaining time. By, spirit, by spiritual gifts, we mean specific endowment of spiritual ability for service. If one reviews Paul's statements, we can come away with some general understanding about those spiritual gifts. First of all, every Christian has at least one spiritual gift, maybe more. The gift does not necessarily mean that it is a ready-made talent or ability, but rather a capacity for service, sometimes which must be developed. The placement of those gifts, we are told, is made by the Holy Spirit, and they are given for the benefit of the body of Christ, that is, the church. Sadly, though, we have come to one of the great battlefields of evangelical Christians. When one begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, and specifically about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, almost any group begins to polarize into pro-charismatic and anti-charismatic segments. So as we come to this final part of our study of the Holy Spirit, of His person and ministry, I want us to be mindful that each of us comes with a set of predispositions. But I would like for us as much as possible to let the Scripture shape our thinking rather than allowing our thinking to reshape or distort the Scripture and that we would rely on the Spirit who alone can teach us the true meaning of this text. 
The gifts of the Spirit fall naturally into three categories. Support gifts, service gifts, and sign gifts. The controversy is over the sign gifts. Those are the discerning of spirits, miracles, healings, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And it is of all the sign gifts, it is the subject of tongues that becomes the dividing line over the charismatic or sign gifts. If we come to the subject of tongues on the basis of what the Bible says, we find that first of all, there is relatively little said about it in the Scripture. Compared with the tremendous amount, if you go to the Christian bookstore and look, even if you go to, the, to Walmart and look at the bookstore, you're going to find there's a tremendous amount of words that have been written about the subject of tongues. It becomes very obvious that it seems to be very out of proportion to what the Scripture has to say. It's quite obvious from the fact alone that it has been blown up into an unwarranted degree and has probably already been treated far more exhaustively than it deserves. But I want for just a few minutes to look at what the Bible says about it. So first of all, where is the gift of tongues found? If you look through the four Gospels, you'll find that there is no mention of tongues in the four Gospels with the possible exception of one disputed passage in Mark. Additionally, we find in all of the epistles of the New Testament, in only one letter is the subject of tongues even mentioned at all. In all the other letters of Paul and Peter and John, there is no mention of tongues. Not even a passing reference. But in one letter, <clears throat> where they had a problem in the church over this matter, you find the only treatment in the writing of the apostles on this subject. It's in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. It's all found in chapters 12, 13, and 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. What is the gift of tongues? <clears throat> the gift of tongues is mentioned three times in the book of Acts. From, these passage, we, from this passage, we can learn several things. First of all, in the book of Acts, the second chapter, we have the, the experience of the disciples at Pentecost. It is clearly evident if we looked at this passage that the tongues that's being described here in this initial experience in the Bible is a definite known language. Now there is a claim made from the occurrence of the word unknown. If you have a King James Version Bible, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14 verses 2 and verses 4, You'll find in that passage, the word before the word tongue, you'll see the word unknown. You'll also note that it is in parenthesis, which is telling you it is not in the original text, but that the 
the author here is trying to give you, the person who is giving the translation is trying to help you understand what this means. That means that it has no basis in the original Greek. It was supplied by the translators to explain the text. What they meant by it was that there was no one present who understood what the language was, and therefore it was unknown to those who were present. It has been taken to mean, however, that it was a language that was never known anywhere on earth. But the idea really has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. There were definitely, these were definitely known languages that we see on the day of Pentecost. You read the passage, you'll see that every man understood in his native language. Secondly, it is evident from this account in Acts chapter 2 that that tongues are a sign not to believers but to unbelievers. In verse 12, we read that these men who were come from all of the nations of the earth were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? It stopped them in their tracks. They suddenly stopped in their natural course of business, and this began, became a sign to them that God was at work in some unusual way. Which is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-two: Tongues are a sign not for the believer, but for the unbeliever. Third, as the body of Christ is being formed in the period of the book of Acts, each, as each distinct group hears the gospel for the first time and are added to the body of Christ, then the gift of tongues is given as a sign that they are indeed a part of that one body. In Acts chapter 2, In the beginning, only the Jews were speaking in tongues. Later in Acts chapter 8, we find the Samaritans are also added to the church. Samaritans are not Jews, they're not Gentiles. But when they're added to the church, there was a manifestation of the speaking in tongues as a sign. In Acts chapter 10, we have an account of when the Gentiles were added to the church from the household of Cornelius. They were not Jews. They were not Samaritans. They were Gentiles. In Acts chapter 19, we have the only splinter group left. You say, well, who in the world can that be? They're not Jews, they're not Gentiles, they're not Samaritans. They're the disciples of John the Baptist. They were no longer Jews. In fact, they had believed the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were not Gentiles, they were not Samaritans. They were a small group that needed to be added to the body of Christ. They were added to the body of Christ, and they experienced the manifestation of speaking in tongues. After this, there was no further need for the manifestation of speaking in tongues because each group had already been added. Samaritans, Jews, Gentiles, and that group of the disciples who didn't fit into either group. Which leaves us with the question, is the gift of tongues for today? I want to 
direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails, but where, whether there are prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there are tongues, they shall cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. <clears throat> first, he, first of all, he says love never fails. That means love does not decay or it will not be ab abolished. Love is eternal. And thus to invest in love is to invest in eternity. Now this was in contrast to the gift of the spirits which had, been, which had captivated the hearts of the church at Corinth. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, they will be done away with. Because the focus of our study for this evening is just the gift of tongues, I just want to look at that phrase, where there be tongues, they shall cease. So whereas prophecy and knowledge will be done away with when the perfect comes, and what is the perfect, by the way? Well, the reason that we have the sign gifts is to authenticate the message of God, to say this is indeed the message of God. Now we have a more complete method today, and this is the perfect, the complete Word of God. That which is perfect, when it comes, and it has come, then we'll have no more need for the sign gifts. We don't have to have a sign to help us to know whether it's the truth. If we want to know whether it's the truth, we go to the Word of God. He says that the time will come when tongues will stop all by themselves. Tongues had a built-in stopping mechanism. The text does not indicate when that is. Only that the time will come when tongues will stop by themselves. Which raises an important question for us, and that is, has the gift of tongues ceased? And my answer is, yes, I believe it has. Does it mean it can't occur on the mission field? I believe God can do anything He wants to do. And if He wants to use the gift of tongues on the mission field, that being someone being able to understand in their native language something that was not spoken in their native language, yes, I think He can do that. But as far as the church is concerned, I think, yes, <clears throat> the time has passed. A study of the occurrences of the gift of tongues in the Bible is... Suggestive, As we have seen, tongues surfaces early in the book of Acts and in the first epistle to the Corinthians. Then tongues seems to disappear. We don't see any more references to tongues. Now, God's Word has more to say about spiritual gifts than just 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. In fact, the Bible addresses the issue of spiritual gifts in two other places, 1 Peter and in Romans. And yet, in spite of that fact, that each of these epistles was written after the first letter to the Corinthians, they failed to even mention the gift of tongues even once. The answer to the question of where is tongues, I think, becomes obvious. Tongues are no longer necessary. 
the gift of tongues has ceased. And I think that's really all we need to say about that matter, is that according to the Bible, and because of its silence on the issue, that the significance of the gift of tongues has ceased. Let me just close by saying uh, there is a, a movement underway. It's been underway for quite some time. It's called the third wave movement. Third wave movement is really the charismatic influence coming into mainline churches, which is suddenly you have charismatic Baptist churches and you have charismatic Methodist churches and you have charismatic Episcopal churches and you have charismatic uh, whatever, Catholic churches even. The problem is, <clears throat> in almost every case, it is a divisive thing that divides the church where what we just read says that the filling of the Holy Spirit brings unity and harmony among the brethren. It's okay if you want to believe that. If you want to believe that the charismatic gifts are for today, then I think you ought to go to a charismatic church. You don't need to go to a Baptist church and try to institute charismatic teachings among Baptist people or any other mainline church that does not believe in that fashion. And to do so is divisive, and I think would, God will hold those people accountable who divide his church in such a way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day, and thank you for the privilege of being able to share your word. I pray that in some way some of the things that we've looked at might be helpful. I pray that you would challenge us, Lord, to live for you, speak for you, and stand for the truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to have a brief invitation.